my partner Brandon Averill today. Disclaimer, Eric Averill and Brandon Averill are the co-founders of AWM Capital. Due to industry regulations, it's essential to explicitly state that investment or strategies mentioned on this podcast may not be suitable for you, and you should discuss your specific situation with a qualified, certified financial planner. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of AWM Capital or its affiliates. For more information, visit AthleteCEO.com. Hey there, Athlete CEO listeners. I'm your host, Eric Averill from Athlete Wealth, and you're listening to the Athlete CEO Podcast. Each week, we aim to bring you world-class interviews with some of the brightest and successful entrepreneurs, athletes, and business minds today, sharing actionable insight on how to get more out of your business, finances, and life. You won't be hearing any vague theory or strategies from us. Our guests have walked the walk and are committed to sharing the best of what they know so you can apply the lessons they've learned. Whether you're an athlete, entrepreneur, or just looking to hear from some crazy successful guests, this podcast is for you. Now enough with the intro. Let's dive into today's show. I'm excited for you guys to listen in to my conversation today with Charlie Olson. Charlie is the co-founder and CEO of Pando Pooling, a company that helps professional athletes lower their career risk while giving them a unique opportunity to invest in other athletes. I'm excited for you guys to hear Charlie's journey from private equity, venture capital, a stop investment banking, where he ultimately meets Eric Lax, the co-founder of Pando, during their second year at Stanford Business School. For the professional athlete, today's show gives you a unique view into how do you take some of the risk off the table and help secure your financial future with some alternative products that have come to the market And really, what are the questions that you need to ask of the different options that are available to help you guys make a secure financial future? And then for the founder and the entrepreneur, we get into some great conversation of what it's like to run a company in your first year from hiring and firing to raising capital and going to market with a product that's never been seen before. And so for both the athlete and the entrepreneur, I'm excited for you guys to listen in to my conversation with Charlie Olson. All right, Charlie, well, uh, really appreciate you being on uh, the Athlete CEO podcast. I'm very excited for our listeners to uh, learn a little bit about Pando, but also just uh, to hear your story. I think you have a unique perspective and, and you've experienced a lot of different uh, verticals of businesses. So it's, it's going to be a great time for our athletes to hear about a specific product that, that you guys are offering to help secure their financial futures. But then on the flip side for our business owners uh, to hear what it's like in the first year of starting a business and in your background of working for some private equity groups. So thanks for being on the show. Eric, the pleasure is all mine. Look at the, the guest list that have come before me and I'm not sure why I'm here, but hopefully I can at least entertain. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we'll be able to entertain, you know, and uh, we'll get into a little bit about uh, of why you're here. And I think the credibility will will speak for itself. But you know, let's start with a little bit of your background. You said that you are a son of an investment banker, which uh, many <laughs> of the listeners on this uh, this show know. The word investment banker is, it, it's a big payday out of college, and then you hate your life instantly. So what was it like uh, being raised in an investment banker, and it took you overseas? Tell us about that. 
Yeah, no, it, it, it's funny. It's, I guess a dubious introduction. Um, comically, my dad started as a, a lawyer and uh, while working for a law firm in New York, he realized that he was up late every night waiting on the investment bankers. And he said, you know what? I, I, why am I waiting on them? I'll just, I'll just, you know. And so, so he flip flopped and, you know, that was before I was born. And growing up, I remember dad traveling a lot. Uh, I remember him working really hard. He's still the hardest working person I have ever come across. Um, and, and it led to a lot of kind of interesting things. Uh, you mentioned currencies. Uh, we moved as a family to Hong Kong when I was, uh, I guess, heading into middle school. And so that, that was the transition from homogenous northern suburbs of Chicago to a pluralistic, you know, mega city in Hong Kong that, that felt a world away. But, but, I'll, but I'll tell you, you know, it was the coolest thing that ever happened to our family. And my dad being an investment banker was exactly what facilitated for our fam. And, and we grew closer in ways that I think even to this day, we kind of struggle to articulate. But, but maybe the coolest thing was just getting to, getting to see the world. You know, very fortunate to do some traveling and, uh, you know, saw a very stark difference between, and this was, you know, 99 through 2001, kind of the, the natural beauty of Southeast Asia in contrast with, with pretty abject poverty. It was a fascinating uh, learning experience for me and taught me at an early age how big the world was and what a special place the United States holds in that world. Yeah, that's that's powerful. And I think uh, I'm excited for us to get into further conversations, even just, you know, the way that you think about capital and the responsibility of it, of uh, seeing obviously that dispersion yeah. in, in income across the world. And I think it's always good for us to remember, you know, is some of our best education comes from outside perspectives. And, and we do live in this unique bubble. And that's really the intent of this show, right, is to expose individuals to a vast array of backgrounds and experiences of people that have been successful and you know they're from all walks of life so um, definitely interesting background so you come back to the United States for high school you obviously take care of things academically you go to Stanford tell us about your experience at Stanford undergrad well, before I go into Stanford undergrad, I should I should give you one just comical story. My time in Hong Kong, I yeah. I uh, went over there, you know, trying to find some common ground of you know between the suburbs of Chicago, and that proved to be difficult. Uh, and comically, I found it in the sport of ice hockey. And so there was one rink. Actually, there were two rinks in in Hong. Kong. One had a cement pole at center ice. Uh, which you know, I regularly saw, you know, defensemen backward skating knock themselves out. <laughs> the cement pole, and there was another rink that had a um, that had a roller coaster that was right above the top of the rinks, so low you could reach up your stick and tap the roller coaster. I mean, this was liability <laughs> central, and, and we had I had fun. I was I was playing for the Hong Kong Typhoon, the team. I'll be frank, was not awesome. Um, <laughs> I had a distinct advantage, I think, having ever worn skates. 
And and there was a big kind of international tournament in Beijing and, and Hong Kong had a team. And I was, as I remember, kind of captain of our team. And we went to Beijing and we won that international tournament the, the two years that I played. And I was voted best hockey player in Asia back-to-back years, which and is is maybe the biggest kind of laughable award in the world. I, I I'm horrible. I, I I am I am a horrible hockey player. I'm not ashamed that I think I returned to the United States worse than when I left. But, <laughs> but it was a funny experience. I was nicknamed the Snake because I would get the puck behind the net, but in and out of players and go score. There was a fan base that came to see me play on Sunday nights. I signed autographs afterwards. It was uh, it was my 15 seconds of fame, and I think I was you know 11 and 12 years old. The reason I bring that story up is because it leads to a funny run-in in my first year at Stanford. I, I'm at a you know, big surprise here. It's freshman year of college, and I'm at a party, and uh, <laughs> they party and I'm staring across. Too, huh? Yeah, yeah. Believe it or not, believe it or not, <laughs> the nerds, the nerds do party. Um, and I'm at, I'm at a party, and I look across the the first floor, and I have this guy looking at me, and I can tell he recognizes me, and I am a little thrown aback, and he walks over, and he says, "Charlie, Charlie Olson, is that you?" And I'm like, "Yeah," and he goes, "It's, uh, you know, it's Justin. I was your, I was your right winger in Hong Kong, Hong Kong Typhoons." <laughs> And I was like, Justin, unbelievable to see you. I, what a small world, you know? And he goes, yeah, but what are you doing here? And I was like, well, I, you know, I somehow got in and I'm a student. And he said, that's really, he's like, that's amazing that they let you do that. And I was like, let me do that. And he's like, dude, everyone in Hong Kong think you play for the New York Rangers. That is so hilarious. Just, this, this war, this war somehow lives on. And to you know, anyone listening to this that has seen me play hockey, they understand just how ridiculous this is. Um, but anyway, it's a funny story. And but honestly, Stanford was Stanford was the the best school in the world to be at for me. Um, not only not only was it you know a school that is at the pinnacle of athletics and academics and weather and beauty and a thousand other things, but uh, it was the right size and the right school for someone like me who didn't know exactly what I wanted to do education-wise. And I, I found myself in a major international relations that is a hybrid between political uh, economics and history, and that allowed me to kind of build my own liberal arts education, something that I really value, you know, continue to learn how to, to think and reason and, and read and write. Um, and, and it was just amazing. And I, and I liked it so much. I, I guess I the, took the fifth year for a spin and added another degree. So it was, it was awesome. Hey, you know what, why not delay another year into the real world? Right. So yeah. You uh, so so you move on from there. You know you, you think you're going to move to Wyoming and just do some fly fishing the whole time, but <laughs> you, find, you find yourself working. Um, you said for for Cheyenne Capital. Tell us a little bit about Bob Grady, and this is obviously a big uh, platform of just learning the investment world and and what you're doing now. Yeah, well, you know, when I decided to 
you know, pick up, pack my, hop in my Jeep and drive to Wyoming. I'm pretty sure my mom almost flew out to try to kill me. Um, <laughs> but, but six months later, after I kid you not working at a liquor store, doing some roofing, uh, you know, working a couple of blue collar jobs, which actually I, I honestly, I was very excited to do. And thing I really wanted to do. I find, I find immense value in that work. Um, I landed with a mentor in a firm, Bob Grady, Cheyenne Capital, uh, you know, doing private equity, which for anyone on this, you know, listening to this, they know that, you know, coming directly out of school and private equity is, is not the typical route. Uh, doing private equity in Jackson Hole, Wyoming is even stranger still. So I, I found myself, um, I met Bob actually, all roads apparently would me lead back to ice hockey, but at a USA hockey coaching clinic, I, I taught the nine and 10 year olds while I was in, while I was in Jackson for three years. And Bob was a Harvard Stanford business school educated, um, former investment banker who was working with uh, Cheyenne Capital. And he was one of the managing partners. And we struck up a relationship and he hired me uh, against, I, you know, I don't know what he saw, but he hired me. And, and it was an unbelievable experience for me in that I was able to dive into the private equity world blind. And Cheyenne Capital fascinating fund. Um, we, we've raised $500 million from the state of Wyoming. Back when they raised this, this was the state of Wyoming's first alternative investment, their first alternative investment, which is, which is wild. They were a 19 and a half billion fund that was essentially a mix of fixed income and blue Blue uh, blue chip U.S. based large cap stock, and you know I think they finally hired a investment consultant, and someone said, you know what, we're managing a, a real amount of money, and this is this will be my first foray into risk. You know we are not properly, you know, building a portfolio. There needs to be exposure to private equities, and Cheyenne Capital became that vehicle. So we designed the state of Wyoming what we called a starter kit. And that involved us giving them as much exposure to the private equity as possible. So we invested in other private equity funds. We bought secondary um, pieces from other LPs. We did our own direct investing. And we co-invested alongside some of the other funds in which we invested. And kind of in sum, it was exposure for me that uh, for the first time showed me kind of a, what a fiduciary looked like, right? I mean, we were managing yeah. money for the pensioners of Wyoming. Then that's a responsibility that we took very seriously. Uh, B taught me about portfolio theory and how to build a risk mitigated portfolio. Uh, and, and C showed me a lot of the, you know, the amazing parts of investing, right? It, that is an intellectual exercise in which you come to work every day striving to learn and it's it's rigorous and it's fun and you get to you get to wear that cap um and it also showed me the other sides of investing that i that i maybe wanted to get away from so you know at the end of the day 
we were investing in companies and we didn't get to control those companies. Yeah. And, and I think you see my, my move to what I've done now is as a reflection of, of, you know, a desire to do that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Fascinating background. And like you said, feet to the fire. And a lot of times, you know, we're super thankful for our educations, but when you get thrown into it, you know, when you're actually investing other people's money, uh, the responsibility of that and, you know, this is not a, this is not a textbook uh, exercise. This is, this is people's lives, right? And definitely pensions and the oversight when it comes to running pensions for states and for them taking that first jump into the private equity alternative space is enormous. And I think that's even just a, a healthy warning to a lot of our listeners who are very attracted to the alternative space is um, the same kind of uh, respect for risk is the same way that they as as investors should should approach risk and we'll take a lot talk a lot about that later with pando but you know we liken the professional athlete to start thinking through their own career as a portfolio and kind of the decisions that they're making around their income and so your your background in portfolio theory and kind of risk mitigation we're going to get to talk a lot about with pando um, so you leave Wyoming, you have a stop before you end up at business school. Talk us through that. How did you end up at Stanford business school? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think people have laughed at me along the way and said, you know, Charlie, you've gone from Stanford to Jackson hole. Like at some point you need to return <laughs> to earth, you know, and this like, the rest of the world may not look like those two places. And, um, you know, honestly, I, I always felt a little guilty. I always felt that, you know, many of my friends who were, who were on wall street or who were kind of in the big consulting shops and in, in, or in Silicon Valley were grinding, right? They were grinding. And, and I was, and I was certainly working hard and learning a ton from, from, uh, my work with Bob Grady, but it was different. It, it, frankly, you know, Bob and I, would uh if if there were six plus inches of snow text each other at six in the morning and say i'll you know i'll meet you at the first tram line let's go skiing for two hours and then we'll work late (laughs) i I mean that that powder clause i don't think exists in at goldman sachs (laughs) and and so i I felt guilty i you know i said "Am, am i am i paying my dues am i working as hard as i need to do as I need to. And, uh, you know, it, before heading back to Stanford, which I know will be, you know, heaven once again, I probably need to put myself through hell. So, you know, turning back to my dad, I actually went and worked at my dad's um, investment bank. Wow. And in, in addition to that in, in Chicago, and in addition to that, I also took a job working with uh, David Dodson, who is a uh, business school professor and uh, a mentor of mine who actually right now is, is running for Senate in Wyoming. And, and he has 100% my vote of confidence, by the way. Um, and and he, I was working with him on uh, search fund investing, a, a type of investing, which I'm, I'm you know, happy to explain. But those two jobs definitely was you know raking my my own feet over the over the coals a little masochistic maybe but set me up really well to head into into business school 
And and maybe I'll just maybe I'll just hit the search fund model really quickly, just because I think it may be really interesting to listeners. Um, essentially, the search fund model allows an individual go raise money from a group of investors to go search for a company to buy. So let's say you go to 10 investors, raise 1000 a piece from them. You have $500,000 to spend over the next two years, either by yourself or with a, a partner, and go business, right? Go find a business that makes sense that you can buy, run, operate, improve. You can think of it like a micro equity fund, right? A, a, a single deal private equity fund. And then when you find that business, you return to those same investors that search capital, and they have a right to invest their pro rata, so their proportional amount uh, in the deal. Essentially, your investor group will buy you the business and you will join that business as CEO. And over time, by you know, kind of clearing uh, performance hurdles, you can earn up to a third of the equity in the business. So it is a way to fund the search for and purchase of a business, and then you operate. And I found that I found that to be appealing. And, it, and in hindsight, I guess it was my half step to what I really wanted to do because I saw it as a blend of you know private equity background along with operating a business and that tangible focus on clients and customer uh, and clients, customers and, and employees that I really wanted. Um, and so I was working with David on, uh, on, on his search fund portfolio and actually helped him raise his first um, search fund fund. And, and I learned a ton from him through that process about investing and what, what makes a good search fund business on operating, what constitutes good leadership, how do you manage the transition of a business? If you are buying something that, for example, has been run by a 30-year founder who, for example, it, you know, says it's just time to, to, um, to get out, it's time for that, that exit, how do you manage relationships with the other 45 employees? Right. And, and, and what does that look like? Uh, so it was a fascinating kind of eight months prior to business school. And I think really teed me up for many of the lessons learned uh, at Stanford. Yeah, that's great. And thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I, uh, I have a few uh, friends down here, uh, ironically from uh, Stanford business school that ended up doing a search fund and, and they're now operating a business. And, and so fa fascinating opportunity there. Um, so yeah, take us to, to Stanford and, and biggest story coming out of here is you meet your, your business partner, Eric Lax and, and you guys land, uh, launch Pando walk us through that. And then just, uh, what the initial conversations were, uh, about the idea and, and how you guys arrived at Pando. Yeah. So, you know, I, I got to Stanford and it, frankly had, uh, had imposter syndrome. You know, I was having conversations with people every day where I was like, well, it, hey, it's very clear why you're here and what the hell am I doing? Yeah. Um, and, and, and I'm not sure that that ever went away. Um, but certainly one of the individuals with whom I had that feeling 
was Eric Lacks. Uh, we are talking about a, a bona fide genius here who, um, in addition to his MBA, was also pursuing a degree in computational mathematical engineering, um, which I can't spell. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a data science degree. And, and actually, as he likes to say, you know, I hate to steal his joke, but he, he says, you know, just, just so people don't think I'm cool with my MBA, I decided to pursue a degree in data science so people would know I play board games. <laughs> and, and that so accurately <laughs> describes Eric. It's not funny. Um, and so actually, yeah, Erica first approached me because he knew I knew a fair amount about search funds. And he was intrigued by the idea. And we had a coffee. And that first coffee lasted an hour. And uh, one coffee led to a second. And by the end of, I think, you know, th this is the start of our second year. Uh, by the end of kind of 10 weeks, we've realized that we've had, you know, 10 hour long coffees. He's thrown a thousand ideas at me because he is an absolute idea machine. And he asked me if I wanted to do a search fund with him. And I said, no, <laughs> I said, <laughs> I said, no, because I, I thought that his brain was, was too big for the search fund model. Um, <laughs> he, he, that man is put on this earth to, to create new businesses. and. Um, as a, as a kind of, you know, halfway step, we decided to join a class called lean Launchpad and tried to start a different business. Um, uh, not Panda. This, the, the first business that Eric and I looked at was focused on physical therapy adherence. Hmm. The idea being that physical therapy is a profoundly effective tool when used correctly, right? That there's a reason insurance companies push you with the physical therapy rather than giving you surgery. It's because it really works. The problem is you and I, especially you and I, Eric, are profoundly lazy and, yeah. and we go to physical therapy and we do our work in the gym, but 90% of it is supposed to be done at home and we don't do that. <laughs> and, and humans and humans are, are, are not good. The professional athletes in this podcast are not going to understand what I'm talking about, but everyone else will. And um, and we thought, you know what? We can we can design a better system. We can put smart sensors into therabands, for example, track the patient's kind of adherence, and pay them to do their at home workouts. Wow, and we can do that because we can save the companies billions of dollars totally on you know unnecessary surgeries and gamify the system, right? That the tech has come far enough. We were looking at doing was assessing, and there's a lot of you know teams that do this as well. Is assessing how far back you are. Hey, you know your tension, your torsion, your flexion has come this far over the past four weeks. Great job. We think you're two weeks out. And all of a sudden, you know, the system's gamified. And anyway, I still think it's a good idea. Somebody on this, somebody listening to this needs to pick that up and run with it. Yeah. Um, we, we ultimately were less excited about it, that idea than the one that Eric came to me with next. And that setup was this. Eric, Eric approached me and said, Hey, Charlie, I'm doing research with a Stanford labor economist. 
uh, we've basically come to the conclusion that mortars are becoming risky. Uh, and that currently, there is no way to protect your career risk. There's no such thing as career protection. Uh, once you choose a career, you're locked into the odds of that career. You know, th- there's no homeowner's insurance, fire insurance. Th- there's no equivalent. You know, what are we doing if the rest of the world is going to become increasingly high risk and increasingly we're going to have more people entering these high volatility careers? How do we protect the vast majority of people that will not become and so he, he kind of presented to me this, this question and I'm staring back at him like a deer in the headlights. Like <laughs> if you expect me to come up with the answer right now, you found the wrong guy and, and he's ready. And he goes, he goes, simple. It's pooling. It's been done forever. It's portfolio diversification. Yep. Right. We are going to bring the idea of a private, private sector market based social security policy to people entering high volatility careers. You know, you and I are going to be the ones to do it. And and that was kind of and that was kind of the my aha moment of I don't even know about pooling at this point, but man, Eric's a keeper. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and, and and we were off to the races. We were off to the races. And and it's it's been uh it's been a fun rock past, I guess, uh, you know, year and a half since since he first approached me with that idea. Yeah. And so obviously no, no better uh, testing ground on that thesis than professional baseball, where you have this hugely volatile career, you know, as a former minor leaguer, I, I know uh, how difficult uh, it is to a just become a big leaguer, let alone stay long enough to, to really have financial security. Um, And then the discrepancy of pay, right. That's very public of uh, minor league wages and uh, up to major league wages. And so it's very interesting because not only is it, is their career volatility of whether you make it or not, is every day that you get older playing professional baseball, you're essentially behind in the business world, you know? And so fascinating industry for you guys to do this what was, you know, what was the draw beyond that? Is that the draw to baseball or how'd you guys arrive on starting there? As I know, exciting news, you guys are moving into more verticals and different sports, but, but talk about, you know, the start with baseball. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, you know, the problem, right? I mean, you just articulated the problem. Um, And we did not start with baseball because we're baseball guys. You know, I, I, I wish that, you know, we had had a deeper network. I wish that I had, honestly, I wish that I had lived that experience because first of all, that's the American dream. Right. And, <laughs> um, it, it, that's just not how this started. We, we actually started by, by talking to a hundred of our business school classmates and yeah. off, offering them the following deal. Uh, we will group 10 family. Each of you will agree that the first five million you make, you keep. And after that, 10% of your earnings will go in pool with the random other 10 or other nine, I guess. And we had 71% or 71 sign up. And we had 98 that said, you know what? If I can choose, then I'm in. 
And to us, that was kind of the biggest eye opener where we were like, gosh, you know, in professional baseball, the floor is zero. I mean, you can leave professional baseball with zero in your bank account. And, you know, the floor looks a little different coming out of a, uh, a Stanford business school. Yeah. And yet, and yet, and yet, the volatility is actually incredibly similar, right? The dis- disparity between the low and the high earners is actually very similar. And uh, while the, you know, the desire for a safety net kind of is similar as in baseball, really at that point, it's about betting on upside, right? You don't fear of missing out. You look around the room and you say, hey, there's a Sheryl Sandberg over there and there's a Warren Buffett over there. And I would love to buy a little piece of, of their future. I don't have cash. Yeah. I'll trade a little bit of me. And so, you know, and I will, I'll take a, st- a jab at myself here. I, you know, I think that's a fairly high ego group. So, so we said, okay, you know, if, if this works here, where else does it work? And if we're going to ultimately build a platform, anyone in any high volatility career can come to Pando, look for, find, and or build their own pool. Where do we, right? What, who are the marketable, who are the marketable, you know, individuals that we can target first who need this the most? And that, and, and that to us was kind of a, a resounding, you know, baseball, right? Yep. It, it, as you said, the, the problem is, you know, public, um, the uh, is public. We were able to do a ton of the work ahead of time to really understand the math behind this, to un- just how uncertain a career in professional baseball can be. Um, and and frankly, it's a it's a group of you know seven thousand professional baseball players for whom you know they need options. Baseball players should have more options. They are valuable. It just turns out that their value is in potential value. And very few of them get to realize that value. And we figured that this was a very, uh, very cool opportunity to give back to a game that Eric and I both love, and, you know, originally loved as fans and are now, you know, as kind of, you know, members of a baseball community. And, you know, I think that what we're doing helps promote a healthy baseball ecosystem uh, for both those that make it and those that don't. Yeah, no, definitely. You know, it's uh, I love the concept when we when we sat down last spring training, um, you know, it, it made it made perfect sense to me right away. Uh, more than anything, how we were just talking about the the economic inequality in the country all the way down to the baseball player of going, you know, I think the, the first initial response when people hear about the idea, it's like, well, yeah, of course, if you're not making a lot of money, you know, you want to be grouped with, with someone who's making a lot. But I think a key distinction of what you said is it's actually not, not trying to bet against yourself, you know, and I think that's a lot of the critique that, that we hear or the misconception about, uh, the alternative, uh, I would say, protection spaces when it comes to athletes, it's, it's the exact opposite. You know, let, let me get together with guys that are in my own kind of class 
and bet on each other, you know, and it, wouldn't it be great to see each other succeed? And so that was, that was something that hit me because if you talk about the draft, right, you're talking about the top 30 players, the first round picks that everybody says, why would they do this? Only 44% of first round draft picks are going to even make it to the big leagues, but they're going to play less than one year, you know? And I think that that's, this is the best of the best, right? These are the guys that are getting paid two plus million bucks um, that there's really no guarantee that, that they're going to be up there. And so uh, that was super intriguing to me. I think, you know, one of the other realizations coming from our standpoint as wealth managers is we understand how difficult it is to a make money, get it invested at a young age. And then really what the requirement is when their careers are over of how much they need to maintain their lifestyle. And so even a guy who signs for 2 million bucks out of the draft, he is not set for life. He's, he's got a huge starting place, right? I mean, we, in this past recent draft, we're fortunate enough to work with a, a few of the very, very high-end picks. And when we sit down with them and show them, hey, you signed for $7 million, this is what it means, or you signed for $3 million and this is what it means, you know, $3 million after tax buys you about a $40,000 lifestyle for the rest of your life. And, and anybody who's older knows 40 grand's not taking you very far. So, the need for it, even for the guys that sign for a lot of money is, is very interesting. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I'm, I'm speaking, you know, to the math, but for me, you look at the high end of the draft, you know, that is actually the group for, for which this product makes the most sense. Right. I mean, those are guys immense value and what we're offering is is essentially this, right? You have, a, you have a coin flip at the time of the draft and side A is $100 million. Side B is zero. And it is 50-50 for those first round picks. And that's kind of what they're staring at, right? If, if we're talking about expected value of, you know, of $45 million and a 50-50 shot, you're, okay, 90 million and zero. And that's your flip, right? Do you want to take that flip or not? Now, what if I were to come back to you and I were to say, okay, instead of a 90 and zero, what if I could do a, you know, an 86 and two? Like that, that is really meaningful. And we're, what we're talking about here is kind of econ 101. It's, it's the utility value of a dollar, right? That first dollar you make is a heck of a lot more important than the 90th million. And, and for athletes, it's, it, it, at the end of the day, you know, I know we are so aligned in this. What we're trying to do is promote future financial security. And if what we can do is increase the likelihood that you make that career uh, or life-changing money, then that's the, best, that's the best gift we can give players in the world. Right. And, and I know you've talked about this in some of your other interviews on this podcast. You know, the most important thing a player can do while they're active as a player is to, if we're talking baseball, is to play baseball at a really high level. Yeah. <laughs> however, however, you got to also plan, right? Also, yes. take what's in front of you. And if there are options out there for you to capture value, 
to set yourself up to improve the odds, or as we like to say, to own your odds, you should take advantage of that, right? Because this is an, uh, baseball is such an admirable career. And I would say that actually these high volatility careers that we're focused on are admirable careers. And we want to promote the ability to get into those um, and that there's a quality of opportunity in pursuit of those admirable careers. But you should be you should be able to take chips off the table and to be able to control your own financial future, even as a young baseball player, because there is so it is such a hard road and there is so much that's out of the athlete's control. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not trying to paint a doom, doom and gloom picture because there are those, and you know, I'll be totally frank. There are those in pooling that may end up with less money than if they hadn't pooled. But in that case, you've made $60 million. Your MLB dream has come true. You've been an all-star. And alternatively, there's a world in which, you know what? You actually levered these, the, the pool that you were in to be a little more aggressive in negotiations with the team, right? When they come to you offering a team-friendly contract early in your career and say, hey, you're totally exposed. You have all of your chips on the table. What if we give you a four-year, $4 million deal? Like, what do you say? If you've joined a pool and you've got some other you know, stud players in your pool, all of a sudden your equation looks a little different. You know, yeah. you're negotiating from a, from a position of relative strength. And, you know, maybe in that way, you're able to negotiate that deal up to $6 million and you still take it. Yeah. But then we've helped you in that case, too. So, you know, the goal here really is, and it will never be the case that we help everyone, but the goal here is to give players a tool that's already being used by the rich, the influential. Right. Give them access to the same thing. Yep. Yeah. I've, I've got a thousand questions, of course. You know, um, first is, you know, it just even more of a parallel. I think about it. Right. The the trade off is if you're if you're the guy, you know, you're Bryce Harper and, and, and you're going to make a half a billion dollars over your career. You know, it, it's it's almost an equivalent of, hey, you bought life insurance and you didn't die, you know. And so you wasted your premium, but, you know, and good for you. You lived in this situation. You made a boatload of money. You wasted a little bit of money where it's going to other people. I think there's also the social component of, of you know what? You've actually helped a tremendous amount of people. Talk about an athlete giving back, you know, of it's definitely cost you money, but just the utility of that, that next dollar um, you've now supported other baseball players, which is, I think is interesting. Now with all of that being said of, of all the positives, what are the biggest obstacles that you're hearing from sports agents and players? Well, I think, you know, I think that one thing that we face is, you know, is a education challenge. I think that this hasn't been done before. And it's, it's, I think there's something ingrained in the maybe social fabric of this country that you bet on yourself at all expenses. And mm. by the way, I think that's absurd. And I actually don't think that really smart people do that. Um, and yet it's 
still a part of kind of social culture. And so I think for when we go to baseball players, you know, one of the first pushbacks we get that you highlighted is, hey, I'm betting against myself. And it takes, it's taking us, you know, some time. Now, you know, I think we're, we're almost 110 clients in and we've been doing this for eight months. So I, I would say actually we're, we're growing pretty quickly, but it's, you know, it's trying to educate them on how you're actually doing the exact opposite. Um, now with agents, agents are, are, are definitely like an interesting group too. And, you know, without taking any shots, you know, I think I totally respect why they think this way, but agents are already pulled. Right, an agent is is, is essentially you know, <laughs> their business model is lined up like a venture capital fund. They correct. They make yeah. a bet on ten players in each draft, and while they care about each one of them equal, the way they make money is one of those turning into the next Derek Jeter, and they need that to be the case. Now, if they promote, say, their um, players into you know into panto and derek cheater ends up losing some money and then blames the agent and the agent gets fired then the agent has cost himself their meal ticket now believe that you know that that's an easy situation to manage to have that conversation with your athlete and to say hey look you know here's why i think this is in your best here are the very real risks uh, you know, we are going to mitigate that by putting you in a pool with a bunch of other uh, rocket ships. I'll, you know, there. I think there are agents that are, you know, like. And by the way, this is t- again totally reasonable. And I and I and I think I would do the same thing. That are hesitant by a the newness of the product, b kind of the the psychological underpinnings, and c you know whether or not this uh, increases the likelihood that that you know they burn their own meal ticket uh, at the end of the day though i many of um many of the top agents in baseball were the first people i spoke to about building this product and so i know they recognize the problem in fact they are part of how we designed the solution and um you know i think it's i think it is good for for their players you know assuming we get them into good pools yeah. So, I mean, I think that's the interesting thing of one of the misconceptions I've heard, at least from the pushback, obviously we're, we're um, we've earned the reputation within a large part of the sports industry and the baseball industry that um, most of the financial questions from agents we field, right. Especially on anything sophisticated when it comes to your guys's product or, you know, the, the equity products that we're seeing from, X10 Capital or, or Rock Fence or at the minor league level, big league advance. And, you know, we've seen some debt deals and, and a, a large part of the, the questions that we get from them are, you know, well, yeah, if you're the first overall pick, you know, you don't want to be pulled with the 15th rounder. And just to clarify for our listeners and just even, you know, I've had this conversation about your guys's product with with non-athletes and which is hilarious is the non-athletes get it right i mean they instantly love it and and so they're very absolutely um but clarify who gets pulled together and then make another distinction of if you do this out of the draft when when do you start paying into the fund and how to talk to me about the logistics 
Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, the simplest way to articulate pooling is that you want to put people with similar expected future value together. That means likes with likes. Um, Boiled down, that's first rounders with first rounders, double A players with double A players, you know. Um, and, and that's where Eric's background as a data scientist, um, kind of, you know, coupled with the algorithms that he's written, helps us get a pretty narrow banded understanding of what a player's future expected value is. Now, you know, total honesty, the only thing we can be sure of is that that assessment is going to be wrong. <laughs> and, that, right. and frankly, that's exactly why we're in baseball. If it wasn't, if it wasn't, we wouldn't exist, nor would we be, you know, needed. Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's kind of how it's set up. You know, you put a, what we like to call a band of brothers together. And, um, you know, a way to think about that is, you know, I'll go back into the business world. You articulated, you know, the player that makes $50 million, you know, Bill Gates has made so much money in his life. Right? I mean, he is at the very pinnacle. He doesn't need to invest in anyone else. And yet Bill Gates owns a little bit of a bunch of other companies, right? Bill Gates owns a little bit of Warren Buffett and he owns a little bit of Elon Musk. And, you know, it's the same idea with athletes, right? So we're going to put you with your peer group. And the structure of the product is actually pretty simple. The way way we've designed it is so that our incentives um, and the way in which Panda was paid and makes money is totally aligned with the player. So what we do in, by the way, the players ultimately have decision rights over how they want to structure their pool and the rules of their pool. What players have been signing up for is uh, the agreement that each player in a pool will contribute 10% of their MLB salary dollars if and only if they A, make the MLB and B, go on to make over 1.5 million cumulatively. So that means that you don't contribute a dollar of your signing bonus. You contribute nothing for the minor leagues because frankly, <laughs> there's nothing to contribute. Um, nor do you contribute any of the uh, major league minimum. And what's important about that is that we've set up where an athlete only pays for the product when they can afford it. Right. And it aligns kind of how Pando makes money. You know, we take a, a portion of every pool we create. And if the pool never provides any value, so for example, you have five athletes that, that decide to pool together and no one in that group clears the hurdle, the status quo remains the same. No one contributed a cent, nor was you know any money distributed. And Pando didn't make anything because, frankly, we didn't provide any value. So we think we've designed a product that nicely aligns us with putting players in very high value pools. So, uh, yeah, that, thank you for the logistics. I'm thinking of now I'm going to kind of press your buttons on a few of the hard questions, right? Or maybe not hard questions, but I just think thoughts from the industry is first – you know, I think you guys are having success with a lot of players that are outside of the first uh, 60 picks, let alone the first 15 to 30 picks. Um, and a large part of that is I think they're more accessible. They feel like they have less to lose. Um, is 
the other thing I've heard is, you know, very rarely are you going to have five first round picks represented by the same agency. And so there's just a logistical issue of getting five to 10, you know, first round picks represented by five to 10 different agents to agree upon, to, to agree upon pulling this. Um, how do you, how do you see working through that? Yeah, let's start there. Great question. So, um, no, you're, look, you're, you, that is a totally fair assessment. And, um, I think a lot in large part of reflection of our, and, and Eric and my complete <laughs> outsider dumb from the world of baseball. And y- you talk about accessibility, you know, it took us a while to be able to get an MLB player on the phone. Right. And, but I think you, you highlight it, you highlight a, a great point, which is with, for these first round picks, for example, that were, that were drafted a month ago, they walk in post draft. They have just signed a, a big signing bonus for very real money. And all of a sudden there are 30, 40 companies that approach them a thousand different things. And I can only imagine how hard it is to separate the wheat from the chaff, right? And and so I think that that is a limitation that we're facing with high round picks. Secondly, I think at the time of the draft, a player is at his most his most confident, right? He has <laughs> most like, especially if he's you know been drafted in the first round, been dominant his whole career. He probably hasn't faced a ton of adversity. He certainly hasn't faced the talent that is coming as he rises through double A, triple A, and the bigs. And I mean, I'm just thinking back to when I was, frankly, it didn't matter, either 18 or 22, but I felt invincible, right? And so, you know, I think at that point, you know, I had owned a home and you had offered me fire insurance. I might have gotten there, but you would have had to work on me. Right. And so, you know, one thing that we're, we're trying to kind of, you know, assess as a startup, trying to learn our place and, and where the product resonates with a customer is, you know, where does this make the most sense? Where, you know, and at what times should we target players where they're going to be ready to hear this, right? I, and I don't blame young players for, you know, an inability to fear mortality. Right. I, in fact, I would say that, you know, being confident is precisely one of the traits that allows them to be great and probably a big role in fueling them to that multi-million dollar signing bonus in the first round. So there's a bunch of things that, you know, at the time of the draft, first round picks, second round picks, there's just some things working against us, I think. Yeah. Um, no. And, right. and, and, and yeah. secondly, we're brand new. <laughs> yeah, no, I... Uh, I I really appreciate you being candid about it, and um, I think you're right. You know, it's it's like us trying to talk to young players about estate planning. About you need a will, a trust, and life insurance. And it's I'm young, I'm invincible, I'm not going to die. Um, yet it's it's all about risk mitigation and taking care of your family, right? And so uh, those conversations take a lot of time. I think it just uh, takes reputation. It takes seeing one play out that has the biggest impact. And you bring up an interesting point. Maybe it's the player in double A that's experienced three, four years of the minor leagues 
you know, they've seen how quick a signing bonus goes and they're going, Hey, it'd be great to be a piece of, you know, this group of 10 of us going forward. You know, one logistic question of when you're looking at a pool and let's call it first rounders, are you grouping any first rounder together? Like how detailed is, is your underwriting going down to college pitchers, high school position players? And the reason I ask that is, is, you know, I was recently chatting with one of the scouting directors and we were talking about just analytics, right? And how teams are using them, especially on the draft, how reliable the data is, you know, track man's just, even if they have that installed, is it calibrated the right way to, to be able to translate it? And then also just from these 30 teams, if they all have the same data and they're all putting in the same variables, um, they're all getting the same information. And so how do you guys approach analytics? How do you approach the underwriting that you guys feel so confident that you know how to pool people? Yep. That's, I mean, that is an awesome question. I think, you know, data has never been so prevalent, right? And there is so much to go around and, you know, it starts with Moneyball and we've, you know, we've, we've come a long way since then. Um, and frankly, I think you could bury your hand, your head in data and <laughs> never come up and, and you know, and, and miss the forest between the trees. Yeah. Um, Eric, this is Eric's bread and butter, right? I mean, he lives in the world of predictive algorithms. And I mean, he has, he has written algorithms that are fascinating, including, for example, you know, assessing when um, NBA teams party, right? He, uh, he has tracked whether or not it's players' birthdays, their wives' birthdays, federal holidays, whether it's a weekend, whether they're playing in LA, Chicago, Miami, you know, do they have an off day? And based on that assumption, knowing what the spread on the game is and assessing, assessing the implied kind of like missed value. And I only bring that up to say that we have one of the brightest minds in the world working with a kind of unprecedented amount of data. And it gets us to a spot where we are going to give players uh, certainly a experience that differs based on things that you said, like, you know, position, rounds you're drafted, uh, league that you're in, um, position, that you, age that you are, et cetera, et cetera, all variables that go into it. However, I think what makes us different is that what we have done is set up a marketplace, right? And there are functioning bodies in this marketplace that are not Pando. And that's what, and what I mean by that is the players are the ones that are going to choose to pool with each other. We are not pools ours. Uh, it's a it, it, joke. It, it's like Tinder. Both sides have to swipe right. And, <laughs> and, um, and I think that's really important, right? We are going to be the spec. We are going to work with, you know, Eric guys like you and, and the agents to make sure that the, the you know eyes wide open expected future value that we make sense that they aren't doing anything insane, but at the end of the day, players are going to make the final call, right? They are going to they are going to hey Pando hey Charlie hey Eric I'm not sure that makes sense and here's why, 
or uh, frankly, what we have seen more often, that does make sense. And, and I'm, I'm in the locker room with this player and I know who they are. I've seen their work habits. That's a friend. That's someone I trust. That's someone I want to bet on. And let's go for it. Right. I think there is, and I think you kind of highlighted it. Um, you know, athletes, I think, have a pretty intuitive understanding of, and I think it stems from the fact that risk and uncertainty. And I think it stems from the fact that athletes more so than, uh, let's say, you know, lawyers and PhDs, um, they understand that, you know, they're put another way, they've seen a best friend who was better than them, who got cut or got hurt. They saw a player that was worse than them get promoted over them or seen a player get stuck underneath an unbelievable shortstop. You know, imagine sitting behind Derek Jeter, right? So I think that there's an understanding of a, the murkiness of expected value. And, and that, that's exactly why you want Pando. So interestingly, I think it's, and then again, I'm, I'm being, you know, totally, you know, kind of kimono wide open here. We, that's why I started by saying, you know, we're going to take a very close look at expected future value, but the only thing we promise is that we're going to get it wrong. And it's precisely that fact. It's precisely that reason that why, that's why we exist in baseball. Yeah. And it's funny, right? It's, it's the paradox because we've moved to such an analytical game that we saw it this past off season and where teams have valued players massively different than they have historically. And a large part of it is, is they now say we have these algorithms and we have these models that we think X player is worth, you know, this amount of money. And in, as we construct our portfolio of our players, it's going to produce this many wins and we need, 91 wins or whatever it is to get into the playoffs. Therefore, we're not going to overpay for some some guy that we don't think is going to add the right expected value to overall our overall portfolio. Yet the funny thing is, is it's highly unpredictive, right? It's it's in the investment world. Past performance does not, you know, guarantee future results. Or and and I just think it's a really interesting deal because it's really hard to go. What is your expected value? I was having this conversation with one of the partners of one of the largest agencies that, that we have clients with and, and he's been in the business for 20 plus years. And, and, you know, we were talking specifically about these alternative companies, you guys, X10, rock fence and trying to evaluate at what point to break even, when is it better to do a, you know, a equity deal take a team friendly deal, play it all out. And the big, the big kind of elephant in the room is these are all, you know, hypotheticals based off of other players, historical numbers that you're going to be put into those. And there's so much uncertainty around it. So it's like, is this guy really worth a hundred million or is he more likely 80 million or, or 10 million? And so being on our side of it as portfolio managers, I don't see that as, oh, well, don't do anything. Just let it ride. We think about it the complete opposite, right? It's like, hey, I could take 100% of your money, put it in U.S. large cap, 
And we know that you'll kick out about a 6% return. We also know that you're going to have to go through a 50% drawdown and humans don't do those. And so therefore, let's put some bonds in there, you know, and, and let's talk about risk and portfolio construction. And, and I think that that's where a huge part of this education has to get to. Of It's not about betting against yourself or even for yourself as much as is like, you're now having these alternative options on how to make money and how to reduce your risk as a career risk. And so it's, it's a fascinating conversation. Um, one of the other, you know, jumping to the next question, one of the other questions or concerns, not just with you guys, with anybody is you guys are new to market. We haven't seen these play out 10 years down the road. 15 down years down the road. So what we have seen is Francisco Mejia sue the company that he did a deal with the minute he got to the big leagues and now he's got to pay out. Now, right or wrong, people can evaluate whether that deal was was appropriate or those type of things. I think you guys have demonstrated to me a ton of integrity, how you guys are in it. I think you use the word fiduciary. I think you guys really are trying to protect the players. Um, but, you know, you get, let's, let's call it, you get 10 first rounders to put it in a pool together and one guy ends up making a hundred million dollars. How are you going to logistically, how are you collecting on that money? Question, you know, and, and we saw kind of what happened, you know, um, in the ecosystem around us. And that's exactly why we went with the pooling model, right? Ours is not an exchange of value. It's not a, hey, we give you X today for Y down the road, because I think baked into that very, that very model has to be a bunch of assumptions so that you return IRR to investors. And it means, it means, especially if we're talking about unsophisticated investors, in, in this case, the player, let's say, um, then, then in some ways you're taking advantage of the exposure that they have. and. And we wanted to go kind of the opposite, opposite way and to allow players to, to be their own fiduciaries. And, you know, we know that the high end players have an Eric April and they, and they have a, a Casey close, right. And they have really big, you know, smart people at their sides that are going to help them make good decisions. And we leave them up, we leave it up to them. This is a platform, a, a marketplace players get to play explore the market see what their options are and if there's something there that they like run with it now you a great question so let's so so you know our pool let's say we have 10 players in the pool and one player goes on um let's say it's only one player so other players don't ever reach the hurdle they for whatever reason you know the combination of injuries and you know getting cut and blah, blah, blah. Only one player clears that hurdle and goes on to have a 15-year career. A, A, you know, that 100 million, let's say they go on to make 100 million, that's not going to be, there's not going to be some one-time, you know, 10% check that comes out <laughs> down the road, right? I mean, that, that would be, and it also is runs counter to exactly what we're trying to do, which is put money in the hands of people that need it. Right. So what we do is twice per season after a player is above that hurdle, 
we, you know, request the contributions and then we distribute based on the ownership in the pool. So this is something that will happen over time. Um, it's going to emphasize the importance of the kind of social makeup of the group, right? I mean, this is what makes ours unique is it's players helping players, right? Pando has facilitated a marketplace. We have not facilitated a financial asset. And for the player that, let's say, six years in decides that they want out, you know, yes, Pando would, would therefore lose a paying customer. And that's a problem for us. It's a bigger problem for everyone else in that player's pool who, you know, signed up to a contract. Think of it like a real estate deal where you've all agreed to put in 200K to go buy a property and one person decides to get out. That's a real problem. And if we run into that situation, uh, you know, the, the, the contract is very clear about this and has teeth around the fact that, you know, this is a binding obligation and failure to pay results in a number of, you know, first of all, like penalties. And in addition, you know, we will take you to court. I mean, that is like, we will absolutely protect the platform. We are going to protect the community of players that are acting with integrity, that understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. And we're going to go to bat for every other player that has joined Pando. And that's critically important to us. And so, you know, one of the things that we do and we make sure we emphasize is, you know, we prior to signing, hey, look, if you make $100 million, this means you are going to send us, you know, $10 million. And yeah, maybe you own a tenth of the pool, so you get $1 million back. But, um, you know, it's, it's kind of eyes wide open with these guys being super straightforward. And we, you know, are going to be honest every step of the way. Um, but we're going to go to bat. We're going to go to bat for all the people that have, that have pulled and have done so the right way. So anyone that decides to kind of renege, we're going to, you know, we're going to fight. Yeah. No, great, great. Appreciate it. Uh, a few more kind of due diligence questions. I'm trying to think of as our athletes listen to this, right? It's it's an opportunity for them essentially to have you sit in front of them with, without that uh, happening, right? So I want to I want to ask the questions I think they're asking is um, so in that scenario, I make a hundred million. I'm paying you guys ten million of my gross amount. Um, you're only getting whatever percentage I contribute on my salary above or my career earnings above 1.5 million, no endorsement income. There's nothing that's going to uh, attach to my business assets. If I start a company off the likeness of my brands, talk to make sure that that's clear. Exactly. I mean, you, you, you highlighted it specifically, um, you know, in, in the baseball product right now, it is, MLB salary dollars after that first 1.5 million. That is the only salary uh, or income that is eligible. Okay. How uh, am I essentially, am I going to get taxed on that money and then have to send it to you guys? And so that 10 million that I contribute to the pool, you know, what's my tax impact or it's okay if you can't answer that now, you know, it's just a, a question I know that's been asked. 
Absolutely. No, I mean, it's a fascinating question. By the way, I wish I could tell you what tax policy would be in 10 years. Um, <laughs> I, I, I would have given you a different year ago. You know, I, for, for example, yeah. you know, now, you know, players can't write off agent fees, right? And, right. and so, so things change. Um, I think that even in a worst case scenario where, hey, you made $100 million, you're going to be taxed on the $100 million regardless. And, you know, then those players, and then you contribute your 10%. Yep. Then you distribute the money and those players are taxed as well. That is still a wonderful exchange of value and a wonderful bet for players uh, to get involved. Now, if we can find a way over time, makes this tax deductible, that's a bonus to me. I mean, it, it, the tax implications are a cost. A cost of doing business. The yeah, I gave example of you know, uh, what I say, eighty six to two. You know, there's a reason you're losing some delta there, um, yep. but that's exactly the trade that you are willing to make to say that the first two are worth more than the last four. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then kind of the next question, and these are just questions that have come over the deals that I've seen and in, in kind of the competitive spaces. Uh, you know, the inherent, if I sign for a hundred million, I'm giving 10 to Pando uh, and my agent fee, you know, are they charging on that, on that portion as well? Or is that in agreement with, you know, the agent helps facilitate this deal and they're not, they're not taking money on that. Or is that a, Hey, that's between you and your agent. Yeah. Well, if, if, first of all, I'd like to say something that, you know, the, the competitor, the competitive products, if you want to call them that out in the marketplace, you know, I think that every single one of them has a place in baseball and we all do share the goal of giving players options. Yep. We do it in different ways. Right? Pando does not give a player cash today. Right. Uh, we provide a, you know, a more secure financial future. We give you a greater likelihood of making um, you know, life-changing money. Um, okay, so to your question, we have not tried to overstep with agents. Um, and that, that relationship, the agent-player relationship is sacred. And that is something that is going to be written into, you know, player-agent contracts, not something that we are going to mandate. So if a player or an agent, you know, wants to take five of distributions, great. And obviously, a, a, a agent will take 5% of, you know, the gross salary. So we don't ever affect, you know, a dollar that an agent makes. Yep. Yeah, no, that's great. And I, and I appreciate you pointing out the, the fact that I, you know, you don't, they're not even necessarily competitors when I think of the, the equity deals and the debt deals. Um, very much like disability insurance isn't what you guys are. And whether that's permanent total disability or loss of value um, or, you know, what I love about this podcast and hopefully trying to educate the players is just to say, this is what's available out there, you know, in their, their each specific situation that each player has to look at, you know, is it, is it beneficial to take money up front now for a future percentage of your earnings? I don't know. You've got to evaluate that. Or should I just get total permanent, you know, disability 
and then loss of value. And you better understand how loss of value works. And then, you know, should I sign this long-term deal? And I think a large part of why these conversations are important is if we start to now put, you know, I guess reorient the listeners as the athlete is to say, hey, the athlete, Pando, X10, all of these companies ourselves, we're actually all on the same side of the table, you know, negotiating to put you in the best position against the team. And the reason a lot of these products I think are interesting is because teams are now more aggressive than ever trying to sign players at undervalued deals. You know, you had mentioned that um, in an off conversation, some of your materials, $740 million were left on the table the last three years of kind of under market value deals. Can you talk about that aspect? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I would like to give you credit. I mean, I think that, I think that, you know, the financial advisory world, you know, you don't take a, you know, broad brushstroke approach to any client, right? Each individual has their own circumstances, their own set of, you know, problems, challenges, hopes, desires. And you come up with a financial that is unique to that individual. Uh, What I love about kind of what I'd say is like a blossoming marketplace here for players is that there are more options. And our goal is to be another one of those options. And if, if you stare at your career and you say, you know what, I love the riskiness of professional baseball, love the, you know, the amount of risk I'm taking, then Panda may not be for you. But if you want to take a little more risk and bet on, you know, four players that you think are absolute all-stars, like a investor would, or you say, hey, you know what, I'd love to, you know, hedge and maybe take a few of my chips off the table and help increase the likelihood I make money for professional baseball, then there's a pool there too. Um, I think returning to your, to your point, the ecosystem in baseball is really interesting right now. Um, and there's been a lot of lost value by players who have, uh, frankly, been taken advantage of. Uh, you know, players are in a position where they do hold an immense amount of risk. The, the ecosystem is such that, you know, and I'm sure every one of your listeners know, you make no money in free agency. You have to perform you then make it to the MLB, if you make it. You then have to perform three years over MLB men, still performing. You then have to do go through three years of MLB arbitration, still performing. And so through those first six years, you have been paid way under market, right? right? With the promise of a big IOU. That, is, that has been the ecosystem of baseball. That once you, once you hit free agency, you have this big IOU waiting for you that you know has been promised the whole way but it's so big that once you sign that deal it makes up for the lost value prior what we saw this past offseason was fascinating in that teams understood exactly the leverage they had they knew that if they waited players were going to get antsy that if they you know put the flickering light over that iou that players might panic. And then all of a sudden you have teams coming back to the player after the player, for example, has been in the ear of their agent saying, where is the deal you promised with an undervalue 
team-friendly deal to say, hey, look, we, I, we've been here the whole time. Here's your chance. Take money off the table if you want it. Otherwise, we're gone. Yep. And, and, and that's just fundamentally changing the tenor, I think, of contract negotiation. And if we can put players in a better position, as I said earlier, to negotiate from a position of strength, to capture their market value, whether war-based market value, peer-based market value, whatever, then we're helping players universally, right? And and so that's that's an area where we really get excited that you know we can be on the side of you know a bunch of individuals who you know frankly are getting and you know I that may get me in trouble with with some owners, but. You know, I think if they look themselves in the eyes, they would they would agree. Yeah, and and uh, I look at it and go, you know what? I don't I don't blame the owners, right? Like these are very few of the owners these days are hobbyists, right? I mean, you look at who owns the teams, whether it's the NBA and and the Cleveland Cavaliers. I mean, the guy started Quicken Loans, right? I mean, he owns over a hundred companies. Um, he is a businessman, you know, the same way that the player wants to get paid the absolute best dollar for their value. So, so does, you know, so does every owner. And, you know, uh, from a player standpoint, we all respect Warren Buffett. Um, we all, you know, want our certain value. And so I think teams are just very, they're very smart. And this is where I think for the first time I've seen players this past off season, start to be more intrigued about the business side of their careers in those conversations. You've got a lot of the veterans who, you know, are trying to push the education to the younger guys of what's at stake. And, and to the agents credits, man, I've, I've had a conversation with a lot of them that, you know, they've really tried to educate a lot of the players, but a lot of the players, you know, just weren't interested. And I think that that tide is going to change because now they have to be prepared. And I know that based off conversations of just even watching agents with our clients, they're being more proactive before deals are even getting presented. Because the hardest thing, like you said, it's emotional, right? Like where, where behavioral economists got it wrong is we're not, we're not you know, we are emotional beings, you know, we're not always utilitarian to pick what's the best economic decision. Um, and I see this with players because I start to ask them, hey, would you sign a $25 million deal? Absolutely. Would you sign a 20, a 10, a 15? And you start to talk to players. And, you know, I think that reality is, is they know on paper they're worth $40 million, but it's really hard to turn down 15, right? Um, because 15 changes your life and it's no discredit to the agent. They have, they have poured over the numbers. They've had late night conversations with the player and their wife. Um, but it's just hard to turn down 15 million if you don't have alternatives in place and the traditional just disability insurance, you know, in, in my opinion, um, the other, the other opportunities have to be looked at. So I just, you know, I do see agents doing a really good job. Um, I just think players are going to have to pay attention a lot more and, and pick their head out of the sand and, and, and be educated. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, look, look even at just the recent kind of purchase of the Carolina Panthers. 
by David Tepper, right? I yeah. mean, hedge fund extraordinaire. You know, you put him down at the table, you know, against against a player. You know, that's that's an interesting matchup, right? And <laughs> and I couldn't and I, I couldn't fault any player for their desire to take money off the table. Like it is so profoundly important that they achieve financial security. And I think that they're saying profoundly human about the desire to provide for your family, to be financially secure and to have a secure financial future. And so that $15 million contract, that does change a life. And, and I am fully in support of a player if, for whom you know that satisfies their needs, signing that deal. What our job should be, and by our, I mean agent, financial advisor, anyone on the periphery, you know, whether it's, you know, Pando or the other, you know, companies that you mentioned, our job is to be better with expectation setting of treating the athletes like adults, telling them what they are worth, what the ecosystem really looks like, and putting them in a position where we can negotiate fearlessly and fiercely on their behalf, right? If we can put ourselves in a position to take 20 million instead of 15, that is huge, right? And so, and, and that at the end of the day is exactly, exactly why we're here. And I know that's why, you know, you do what you do and what, you know, the agents that are, you know, fight valiantly for their, for their clients as well. And I think at the end of the day, it stems from expectation setting and, you know, really treating, treating our professional athletes like the adults and the, you know, business owners and, you know, kind of capital carriers that they are. Yeah, man, you, you couldn't have put a better bow on it. I, it makes me think also of um, price is what you pay value is what you get. And as an athlete, you know, you may sometimes wonder I'm paying a lot to my agent. I feel like I, you know, am I paying too much to my financial group? X, Y, Z is the value that you get at the end of the day is that you have people that are thinking through this ecosystem and the bigger decisions that if an agent convinces you to not take a $10 million deal and you eventually make $30 million, you know, and all the other purchases that, that, you know, they help you prevent to make and those type of career decisions is it's well worth the percentage. Right. And I think that that's the type of thing that players, you know, very wise business people look at and go, are they providing value? And if you've got people having these conversations around you, that's a good testament that, Hey, I'm getting the value far beyond what I'm paying these guys. Absolutely. I, you know, an athlete is in such a vulnerable position so many ways. They have, you know, people reaching out to them with crazy ideas, good ideas, and everywhere in between. And, and I think at the end of the day, having a profound support system that really does have your back, a team of experts that has your best interests in mind. And I'm thinking of, you know, some of the amazing agents that I've met and some of the amazing, amazing financial advisors that I've met, that those are the best decisions an athlete can make. Yes, you know, at the end, they need to handle their business on the field. But if you can combine that with a team approach, think of it as like, think of it as like, um, well, my personal example is there's no chance Panda would exist without Eric, 
there's no chance it would exist without him, right? And there's no chance it would exist without our CFO. And for an athlete, if they really want to think about themselves as a business, you know, they are the CEO. They are also the head of product, but they need to have a CFO and they need to have a COO. And if they don't, and they don't take those two hires very seriously, they're doing themselves an immense disservice. And as you pointed out, you think about the math, the mathematical implications of a bad decision on either one of those hires, it's immense. So, you know, to, to out there, you know, I just encourage you seriously to read a book on hiring prior to making those decisions, <laughs> figure out, you know, what it is you're looking for, interview, and, and, and really be meticulous with who you invite into your inner circle. Because, you know, at the end of the day, that, that is the, the unit, the collective unit that is either going to kind of like, you know, make or break your financial future. Man, that's huge. Well, Charlie, we, we need to do a whole separate show uh, <laughs> on, on actually running a business and investing and doing all of that. Um, I want to be respectful of obviously your time, but seriously, I look forward to doing a part two because we didn't even scratch the surface and, and all of that that I know our business owners, uh, our founders, our entrepreneurs would absolutely, I know they're, they're waiting for that conversation to happen if they've stayed with us uh, through, through the baseball and athlete conversation. So I thank you for, for the time that you spent with us today and um, hope to have you back on the show. Eric, absolutely. As I said at the beginning, pleasure is all mine. And any of you athletes out there or business owners, um, our website is www.pandopooling.com. And uh, my email, Charlie, uh, C-H-A-R-L-I-E at pandopooling.com. And, and honestly, I welcome kind of any, any questions, comments, concerns. Uh, and you can drum up some business. This has been super fun, Eric. I appreciate what you're doing. I think I told you, I think you've, you've built something here where you're talking to people at the nexus of sports and entrepreneurship, which is a, which is an awesome combination. You're doing a great job. So thank you. Thank you. And, uh, for the audience, as much as, uh, Charlie will let me, uh, put some of the, uh, the details in the show notes about probabilities and kind of just whatever public information they're willing to put out there. I'll make sure to, uh, put in the show notes. So Thanks for the time, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Athlete CEO Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the Athlete CEO Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our show today and are ready to take action on the advice from today's episode. Our goal with the Athlete CEO Podcast is to make it the go-to resource for athletes and entrepreneurs looking to take their game to the next level. Love the show? You have any suggestions on how we can improve? We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email, tweet, and share your thoughts. We do our best to read every single one. We'll see you next week with another world-class episode.